morning. My name is Carl Ingvin. I'm one of the elders here. Scripture passage comes from Luke 19. If you're using the Blue Pew Bible, that's on page 878. Read the first 10 verses. I'm going to ask you to stand for the reading of God's Word. Luke 19. He entered Jericho and was passing through, and behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich, and he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd he could not, because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled, he has gone in to be with the guest of a man who was a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. You may be seated. We'll take a few minutes to meditate on God's Word. All right, everyone, pray with me if you would. Lord Jesus, we come before you today grateful to see you offer hospitality to Zacchaeus, a man who didn't deserve it, but he knew he didn't deserve it. Your hospitality transformed his heart. And so today we we thank you that you have offered us hospitality as well, that you want to be reconciled to us, that God, this hospitality is going to change our hearts as well. And so I pray that we could hear these words. I pray that you would speak to us through my words, because we need your word, not mine. And I pray that your words would abide in our hearts and change us. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. So I asked the worship team to uh, introduce this song by playing, or introduce the sermon by playing Taxman from the Beatles. But they told me that it is not a Christian song and has no place in a worship service, uh, which is fine. So it's not, don't hold that against them. Um, no, Zacchaeus is a tax collector, which uh, as we're going to see the implications of that. Um, but more importantly, really, for this sermon, or as importantly, um, I titled this sermon, The Other Rich Ruler. Because last week, in the chapter before this one, in Luke 18, we looked at a man who is just known as a rich ruler. We don't even get his name. He comes to Jesus looking not to be changed by Jesus, but looking, kind of like Paul talked about, to be approved. He sort of has this resume of good deeds that he thinks makes him, you know, worthy of an attaboy from Jesus. And so he basically asks Jesus, he tells, you know, here's my resume, Um, what do you think? And Jesus says, there's one thing you lack if you're going to be my disciple. I want you to sell everything that you have, give it to the poor, and then you can come and follow me. 
That's not the condition for every person to ever follow Jesus, but the reason he does that in that moment is he identifies that this man has a functional God that is over his life. It's his wealth. And when Jesus asks him to take that off the altar of his life, kind of like we talked about before, to take money down, give it away, and follow Jesus, he can't do it. And he goes away remaining just a rich ruler whose name we never learn, never becomes part of God's kingdom. Now this, uh, and that actually prompts Jesus to say in chapter 18, verse 25, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. So in other words, to use modern kind of stuff, it's easier to get a suburban through a drinking straw than it is for a rich person to get through the gate into God's kingdom. That's not hard, that's impossible. That's impossible, and that's what prompts people, people going to ask him. They're like, how can anyone be saved? And he says, it's not possible with man, but it is with God. So with that in mind, let's look at verse 2 of this passage again. Verse 2 reads, Behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. Now, this isn't as obvious in the English, but his title, chief tax collector, is one word, and the prefix for chief is the same word for ruler. So Zacchaeus is a ruler who is rich. Sound familiar? And it's worse because he's not just a rich ruler who could have gotten rich through any kind of means, just like the natural blessings of God or even his own hard work or good character. He became rich as a chief tax collector. And so he's not just like a camel looking down the eye of a needle. Um, He's much worse. So in those days, the tax collectors, they worked for the Roman government. And they collected money on business deals and on goods passing through. So if someone brings like 100 camels through the city, they say, well, you're using our public services, you're using our roads and facilities, and so why don't you help Caesar out by leaving five camels with us? Or their value in silver. You know, we'll take either one. So that's what tax collectors did. And, um, you know, because some of that money would go to the Roman government, it would go on to Rome, but part of it would go to the tax collector. That's how they got paid, was they got to kind of add their own little cut on top of, you know, whatever Rome required. And so as the chief tax collector, he gets sort of a take even from the tax collectors who are below him, and he sets the terms for what they do. So Zacchaeus is kind of standing at the head of a pyramid scheme that everyone has to play because you can't haggle with the tax man or say no to the Roman government. Um, we had to preach this in February because the closer we get to the middle of April, we start getting some like heavy breathing coming uh, from this. So uh, you're welcome for that. Um, so this is why tax collectors are lumped in with sinners in the eyes of God's people all through the Gospels. Um, they work for a hostile occupying government, which, you know, by the way, kind of gets modern conservatives hackles up. And they usually get rich through unjust means by defrauding others, which gets kind of modern liberals uh, seeing red. And so there's something to hate about Zacchaeus for everyone here. You know, it's like we can all gather around and hate on uh, this rich tax collector. So he's not just a camel. He's an elephant. And everyone assumes he's kind of hoofing it, you know, the opposite direction of the needle. He's not even contemplating trying to get in in their minds because of who he is. And so an ancient Jewish reader at this point would say, whew, this is going to be interesting. See what happens here. But Jesus does something extremely surprising in this passage. He takes an action that becomes the hinge of the whole story uh, that changes the course of everyone in it 
And it's not as obvious to us maybe what it means as it would be in the time. So we're going to focus on it maybe a little bit more than we would. Um, But it's in verse 5. It's in the middle of the story. Let me read it. It says, And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, that's Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. Now, like I said, the import of Jesus' action doesn't pop to us like it would have popped to an ancient Jewish reader of Luke's gospel. So Jesus initiates to Zacchaeus, for one. So Zacchaeus doesn't kind of call to him out of the tree like, hey, come here, you know, do you want to come over? He's just sitting there quietly watching everything. So Zacchaeus, or Jesus, stops in the middle of this kind of good-sized procession. There's a crowd that we've heard already, uh, and he calls Zacchaeus down. And so it's kind of shocking that Jesus would even have bothered to talk to a tax collector. Um, But he goes much more than that, does much more than that. He calls Zacchaeus down and he says, I must stay at your house today. So this isn't just like, hey, I need a place to crash. Do you mind if I use yours? What ancient readers would have recognized and what would have made an ancient Jewish reader do a spit take here when they read it was that Jesus was extending hospitality to Zacchaeus. See, in this day, to have someone in your home was a sign of friendship. It's a sign that we belong to one another. It's an offer of friendship. It's like a public proclamation that this person, kind of by the ancient Jewish standards, they're, they're clean and we're reconciled to one another. So we belong together in the same place. It was more on the level of like inviting someone to your birthday party or to you and your kid's wedding not just like the, you know, the obligation invites, but the genuine invites. You invite the people that I really want to be with me, the people that belong with me at like the most joyful times in my life. That's what hospitality is. It's saying we're a people, you and I, this guy and I. And so this is a constant theme in the gospel of Luke, in this biography of Jesus. One book puts it this way in kind of a tongue-in-cheek way. They say, in Luke's gospel, Jesus is either going to a meal, at a meal, or coming from a meal. So it's basically the gospel of Luke is a series of meals that Jesus has with people or that Jesus talks about on the back end of having had with people or someone gets mad at him for having had with people. Um, and it's not because he just liked to eat. Um, sharing a meal with someone was an act of welcome. It was an act of fellowship, of saying, I'm with them. We are in solidarity, in fellowship with one another. And for people who recognized who Jesus was, who saw that he was raising the dead, he was healing the sick, he was restoring what was broken, he was reconciling the lost, he was teaching with the authority of God himself. As they saw these things mount up, people begin to see this hospitality as more than just, hey, there's this nice guy who says he wants to be my friend. They saw it as representing something much greater and much larger than that. They saw that this was an experience of absolute undeserved grace because something about the hospitality of Jesus also meant the hospitality of God. In fact, Jesus says in verse 9, after Zacchaeus has received and been changed by this hospitality. He says in verse 9, Today salvation has come to this house. Not a nice teacher has come to this house, or me a good example has come to this house. He says salvation has come here. 
the life-changing presence of God, which is what salvation really is, has come to Zacchaeus in this time. And he says that because one way to talk about Christian salvation, not the only way, but one way, is to say that salvation is receiving the hospitality of God. Christian salvation is receiving the hospitality of God. See, Jesus' practices of feasting, especially with people that he's healed or that he's changed, follows in the pattern of passages like one from the prophet Isaiah. We're actually going to turn there and read it. It's in Isaiah 25. In the Blue Bibles, it's on page 586. So if you would turn Isaiah 25, page 586. I'm going to read verses 6 through 9, this passage. Isaiah 25, 6 through 9. This is a prophecy from 700 years before Jesus was born. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. God throws a feast. He brings his people to the feast and they rejoice. They celebrate his salvation. Salvation comes this time to the Lord's house because we get to come to the Lord's house. That's what's happening in our passage here. When Jesus comes to earth and he feasts, he goes meal to meal, healing diseases, reversing death, wiping away tears, declaring the forgiveness of sins, some people saw it. They saw that what's happening here is something bigger. We're seeing the hospitality of God coming and reconciling us to himself. This is the end goal of Christianity. It's not just forgiveness of sins, though it includes the forgiveness of sins. It's not even just eternal life in a renewed new creation, though it includes eternal life in a renewed new creation. It's kind of like all the preparations that go into a wedding. You know, all the invitations, all the dresses, all the things, all the stuff, all the reception. All of those things are great, and all of those things, can't, well, sometimes some of them are terrible. But some of them are a ton of fun, so all of those things are important. Um, but the, the end goal of a wedding is the creation of a new relationship is this joyful union of a husband and wife in this, this new kind of relationship that's been begun through that marriage. In the same way, that's what Christian salvation is ultimately about. All the things that prepare us for this lead to this eternal reconciliation of enjoying the hospitality of God forever and ever. And so that's what we celebrate when we celebrate that uh, we are saved by God's grace, we celebrate that God has brought us into his family, has made us one with him, has made us his people, and prepared us for an eternity of enjoying that on a deeper and deeper level. He's restored the one relationship that all of us are really made for. So that's what Jesus does in verse 5. 
That's what that invitation means, as he is offering to Zacchaeus the hospitality of God. And this is one of the points. What we're going to see from here is we're going to see there's two responses to this offer. There's Zacchaeus's and there's one other. And Zacchaeus's response to this offer is that he's transformed by the hospitality of God. That's what we're going to talk about for a little bit. Zacchaeus is transformed by the hospitality of God. We get some clues to this transformation in verses 3 and 4. Let's read those. You can flip back to Luke. It says, And he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd he could not, because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. See, Zacchaeus couldn't see Jesus on account of the crowd. Um, that was partly because he was physically short, but it wasn't just that he was late to the parade and he missed his spot. Um, see, in his official capacity as tax man, the people would have had to obey him. You have to do what Zacchaeus wants. But no one likes him. And when he's just like an anonymous guy in a crowd, no one has to give him any kind of special treatment. No one has to let him in to kind of see uh, through. Everyone's going to kind of box him out. And he might even get like an elbow thrown his way or like a stomp on his foot. You know, someone kind of sees him coming like, bam, ooh, sorry, buddy. So you're going to have to sit back there. So that's the treatment that Zacchaeus gets. He's locked out of seeing Jesus, or it seems like he's going to be. And that could be how the story ended, that he just gave up from that. He said, forget it. This isn't worth it. I hate all these people. Not worth seeing Jesus. And he goes home, and he's another rich ruler who doesn't get salvation. That's how the story could have gone. But the verse hints that there's, there's something more, something different to his story. See, verse 3 says that Zacchaeus was seeking to see Jesus, but the Greek communicates something a little bit more intense than that. It's more like he'd been hoping to see Jesus for a long time, that he'd had this sort of long-standing desire to see Jesus that was more than just the curiosity of, hey, there's a parade, let's see what's happening. He wants to see who Jesus is. We don't know why this is exactly, but he's probably heard things like, you know, Jesus has been dining with tax collectors that no one wants to be his friend. Zacchaeus eats alone or maybe with like other sycophants or other tax collectors who just care about his money or his position. Um, he doesn't ha- he's not going to have friends. Um, maybe he's even heard that Jesus has a tax collector among his disciples. So Levi, Matthew, is a tax collector. He's the same kind of guy that Zacchaeus is, and he's one of Jesus's inner circle, one of his close friends. Maybe he'd heard the parable that Jesus gave from a chapter or so ago where of the tax collector and the Pharisee, where there's a man who's a tax collector, and he like, won't even come into the presence of God because he's so ashamed. He just stands on the outside and cries out for God to have mercy on him. And Jesus says, he's the one that gets mercy. And the self-righteous Pharisee doesn't in that encounter. So we don't know. We don't know what it is, but there's something about him that is desperate to see Jesus, and it pushes him to do something really unusual. Um, he runs ahead of the procession, it says in verse 4, and he climbs into a sycamore tree. And in that day, Jewish culture put a huge emphasis on masculine dignity. It's like in our culture today, dads will kind of get on the ground and horse around with kids, and, you know, there's a grown man can be called a big kid and it'd be a compliment and not an insult, you know, sometimes under some circumstances. Um, but in, for ancient Jewish men, that is not the case. If you're a man of means and a man of dignity, you carry yourself with respect and honor. You don't run because running is a kid thing and something that slaves might have to do. It's not something that rich men have to do. 
Some of you are thinking, now I have the reason why I don't run. So you're welcome. Um, but so, so they didn't run, and they didn't climb trees. Once again, that's a kid thing. That's childish. With that in mind, let's turn back to Luke 18. Let's flip the page, if you're in the Blue Bibles, and look at a passage that starts in verse 15. So Luke 18, starting in verse 15. It says, now they were bringing even infants to him, that's Jesus, that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called them to him, saying, let the children come to me, and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. So Jesus welcomes children who were seen as second-class citizens. They they didn't really belong in polite society. They were seen and not heard. But Jesus welcomes them in. And he says that whoever doesn't receive the kingdom of God, like one of these children, doesn't enter it. He doesn't just kind of begrudgingly accept them. He says if there's something about you that's not childlike, in the certain sense that we're going to see, you don't get in. You don't see me for who I am. Let's think about our story again with Zacchaeus. We have a second-class citizen who's small in stature, who does undignified things like running and climbing a tree out of a longing to see Jesus. These are the qualities of a child. Luke is telling us that how does this rich ruler enter God's kingdom when that rich ruler didn't? That rich ruler came as a grown-up to be approved of, the first one. This rich ruler comes as a child. He's willing to abandon his dignity and to become childlike out of this desire to see Jesus. And we see the change completed. We see how he's really fully transformed after Jesus offers him God's hospitality. Look at verse 8 of our passage. It says, Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. This is kind of a side note, but it's interesting that Zacchaeus becomes at the same time both what we would call generous and what we would call just. Uh, He says, half my goods I give to the poor. There are people in need. My goods are going out the door to them. And if I've been fraudulent in my economic transactions, in my business dealings, I'm making it right. So in our culture today, we've kind of divided these ideas about economic righteousness um, that were held together in the Bible. And so we have kind of on the left, you have the value of generosity, that we ought to be giving to the poor, to those in need. And on the right, you have kind of this law and order idea of we should have fair dealing and justice in how we relate to one another economically. The Bible, both Old Testament and New Testament, holds both of these things together. These are both part of kind of God's vision of economic righteousness. And so Zacchaeus is adopting that, but he's not just adopting it, he's adopting it in this super abundant, overflowing way. See, in uh, the Old Testament vision of generosity, it had principles like don't harvest the edges of your field. So if you have a field, leave the edges, which is kind of like 5%, you know, maybe or so of it. It's not a hard number given so that the poor can go and glean kind of what's on the edges. But Zacchaeus says, I'm not giving 5%, I'm giving half. And then the, the restoration, if you had committed fraud against someone, was to give back what you'd taken plus a fifth. So if I steal 100 bucks from you, I give you back 120. Zacchaeus says, if I've taken 100 bucks from someone, I'm giving back 400. 
So in both of these cases, his generosity and his justice, they are overwhelmingly over kind of the narrow prescripted bounds for uh, the vision of the Old Testament. This is way above and beyond, which shows, you know, how much Jesus's hospitality, how much God's righteousness and God's grace meant to him. They totally transformed him. This is not a trickle from a faucet. This is like an oil well in one of those cartoons that you hit it and it goes geysering up into the air. Zacchaeus is touched by grace and he erupts in a new kind of life, a new kind of you know, relationship with money for him. If you've seen or read A Christmas Carol, this is Ebenezer Scrooge on Christmas Day after all the visions. This rich ruler, not just a rich ruler, this selfish, greedy rich ruler is so touched by grace that his identity changes completely. So he becomes like a child in the sense of abandoning you know, his dignity to see Jesus, and now he becomes like a child in the sense of starting over in a new life built on grace. God's hospitality has transformed him into a new kind of person. The old center of his life was money, and the new center is God's grace. That's how God's hospitality changes us. It doesn't you know, kind of go after money for all of us because money may not be at the core of our identity for all of us. But it takes whatever might be at the core of our identity, whatever might be on that altar of our life, casts it down and puts God's kingdom up there instead. And so it changes who we are from the center out. And sometimes this is a radical change like Zacchaeus experiences. There's a church I worked at previously um, one of the pastors had actually been the first person put under discipline by the church. So he had been the first person whose life was so persistently, unrepentantly screwed up that the church said, we can't even treat you as a Christian. You're acting like an unrepentant sinner, and we have to treat you that way. He was an alcoholic, and he like, wasn't even trying. He was diving deep into alcoholism and running his family into the ground. But God's grace got hold of him and totally transformed him. And he said there came a point where after God got hold of him, at that point in his life, he had zero desire to drink. God had totally taken that desire away from him. So he'd experienced a radical transformation, and so much so that he had been able to become a pastor of this church. And he shared this story in members' meetings. So this isn't like a, a secret I'm telling you. He told new members, this is what our church is about, and this is what God's kingdom is about. So some people experience that kind of radical transformation. For other people, the transformation begins when our desires change, and then we begin a, maybe a lifelong fight against whatever was at the center of our lives before. I knew a guy who's a friend of mine in uh, Birmingham, where I used to live, who he started a, a small prayer group for men who were struggling with pornography and wanted to, to be, become free of that, to walk out of that. And I saw over time, for the guys who were in that group, some of them experienced like real change and real freedom really fast. Some guys, it took longer. It was a longer fight. But they changed through the process of that fight, beginning to work out that transformation, even though it remained an ongoing struggle for them, made them into different people. So that is also a heart that's transformed by grace. You start wanting something different, moving in a different direction than you'd been moving at before. It's transformation. And if you're a Christian, I hope, I hope, I believe you probably do, have stories of how God has transformed you like he did Zacchaeus. 
Maybe it was like this intense, uh, you know, huge, immediate transformation, and maybe it was kind of a slow, ongoing change. But either way, those are such encouraging stories to share with those who are in our community and with people that we're ministering to, because God's grace really does transform us. And if you're here and you're feeling like you need transformation, like you have something where you need change, like you need to become a different person, that might be God giving you this itch like Zacchaeus had, that's the beginning of a new birth. And so I would say, please come talk to me, talk to Paul, talk to one of our elders, another leader in the church, because we would love to talk with you through that and see how we might be able to help you in that transformation, in that fight. So Zacchaeus is transformed by the hospitality of God. But unfortunately, Zacchaeus isn't the only character in this story. And so we're going to spend our last few minutes looking at the other one, because it doesn't have as happy an ending. See, in verse 3, we saw that there's a crowd. Jericho was a Jewish city. So this crowd would have been Jewish people who assumed that they were children of Abraham and therefore God's people um, because they were physical descendants of Abraham. So Jesus has to say about Zacchaeus in verse 9 of our story, he is also a son of Abraham. That He is also a child, a person of God. And in verse 3, we don't see that much about the crowd, just that they won't let Zacchaeus through, which it's not kind, but given everything we've seen, it's, you know, they could, you could understand it maybe a little bit. Um, but the real drama comes after, Jesus, after Zacchaeus receives Jesus' grace. Let's read verses 5 through 7. It says, And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He's gone in to be the guest of a man who's a sinner. See, these people, the crowd, they see Zacchaeus get grace. They see a lost son of Abraham brought back into the family, and they throw a huge party. They say, wow, God's grace is huge. It's bigger and better than we thought. We don't need to, they don't need to just have a feast. Let's have a whole town-wide feast. Let's invite everyone to celebrate God's grace together. No, they're furious about it. They're furious that a man like that would get grace, that a man like that would get the hospitality of God. How dare Jesus eat with someone like that? I don't have to fill in that because you have that in your head. You know who that kind of person is, that they would never receive grace. They would never get God's hospitality. If they did, I don't know that I would want it. I don't know that I'd want to be part of that if they get in. We could talk about some extreme examples, we're not going to do it, uh, but C.S. Lewis wrote that everyone thinks forgiveness is a lovely idea until they have something to forgive. In the same way, you could say, everyone thinks the hospitality of God is a lovely idea until the wrong person gets it. Now, in ancient Rome, Christianity was mocked as a religion of women, slaves, and children, because those are the marginalized people in ancient Roman society, and it says, ugh, the church is just full of them of those kinds of people. Today, you know, we have uh, things like, uh, on the left, people disdaining Christianity as a religion of bigotry and oppression that lets privileged people off the hook. Or on the right, you know, there's a growing movement, uh, which guys like Andrew Tate is a figurehead, says that Christianity is a religion of weakness, and it's, it's beneath the dignity of masculine glory that uh, we should find other places instead. It's kind of in the tradition of Friedrich Nietzsche, who mocked Christianity for the same reason. One author wrote, Christians are called to dine with sinners, 
but not sinless sinners. But either way, when Christians throw in their lot with Jesus, we lose the rights to protect our own reputation. So the crowd sees who gets the hospitality of God. They see who gets in, they say, not for me. And they miss salvation. It comes to Zacchaeus' house and not to theirs. It could have come to the whole city. In John 4, there's a story of an entire Samaritan village where Jesus gives grace to one woman. She goes and tells everyone, and it says, many Samaritans believe in Jesus, that they host him for two days to teach them and have this basically two-day wedding feast with Jesus there where many people come to believe in him. Jericho, as far as we know, there was one. He was the only one because it was the wrong kind of person that got grace. They aren't willing to be in fellowship with that. The hospitality of God challenges us because we have to accept it on its terms. That God tells us who's in and why. That God tells us who we become when we come in and why. He brings us in just as we are. He doesn't keep us as we are. He transforms us. It wouldn't have been okay for him to not transform Zacchaeus along the way. He needed to change. But it, he began by inviting him in, and the process of transformation began. The feast, like Jesus says, is for the lost, not the found. In another place, he says, I came for the sick, not the healthy. So today, as we think about this, I don't know if this is any of you. I don't know if any of you are struggling with considering coming in and worrying that you'll become the wrong kind of person. You'll have to cozy up with the wrong kind of people. Once again, if that's an obstacle that you feel like you're facing, we would love to talk with you about it because there's so much good and beauty to be had on the inside. It's worth abandoning anything, whatever measure of dignity whatever measure of managing my reputation, whatever manner of money might be, what's on the inside is so much better. So I pray that we would all experience the hospitality of God. 